Good to see your faces. Welcome January 15th. We're plugging away through 2023. Let's plug our way through uh, the book of Galatians, shall we? Get this to stay here. All right. You'll turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 12. We're going to be enriched by that like we have thus far with the book. We will leave being very, yet again, very grateful for grace, right? Uh, Very grateful for grace. We got an interesting passage. We've had a few of those in the book of Galatians. But we'll unpack it today. If you don't have an outline, let me know. Uh, Drew Michael's walking around. He's got a stack of papers. There may or may not be some helpful things on there just to follow along. All right. Well, let's go ahead and, and pray this morning. We always want to resist the temptation just to jump in. That would be antithetical to what the message of Galatians really exhorts us in, right? That would be to rely on ourselves <laughs> and our own efforts, our own ingenuity, our own uh, in, insight and understanding. And uh, we need the, the Lord's help. So let's seek him this morning. Father, we thank you for the beautiful day. We thank you for the cool, brisk air. We thank you for the refreshing day. We, we are mindful that as we arose this morning, your mercies are new, a verse, a truth. Lord, that we know, I pray that it would bring even additional new, fresh meaning to our lives this morning as we celebrate the cross, as we revel in who you are and all of your superiority. Lord, the work that you've accomplished in salvation and even that which we will worship around the table, all the, the significance that these elements convey to us, your, your body that was broken, your blood that was shed so that we could be saved and redeemed. And we thank you for the message of Galatians that all of this, the, to be the beneficiary of this, is, comes to us by grace through faith in Christ alone. What a wonderful truth that is. I thank you, Lord, for the peace and assurance that that gives to us. We thank you for the surety in which that provides, that we, our standing is based upon the work of another. We also ask still more that there would be ongoing fruit in our lives as we move our way through this book, that you would root out any air and vestiges of legalism that resides within our hearts, our fallenness, our sin, our flesh, is instinctually prone to wander in that direction. And so we pray that you'd help us to safeguard against that as we now enjoy your word. And we pray all of this now for your glory, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Friends, uh, make your way to your places if you haven't already. Last Sunday, we stepped into chapter 5, and uh, let's go ahead and get the big picture flow of thought that is the last two chapters of the book of Galatians, okay? You'll know this full well, even if you've been in and out, what Paul has been doing is countering the efforts of what group of people? What group of people is causing trouble in Galatia? The Judaizers. And he's countering the efforts of individuals who want to replace the gospel of grace with the gospel of works, right? He's relaying the vast chasm, and it is vast, The chasm that resides between a person who depends upon grace and a person who depends upon law. 
You know this from Galatians 5 already. Last Sunday, Craig did a great job, right? If you're a person who depends upon God's grace, which is Galatians 5, 1 through 12, well, then you're a free individual who yields to God's spirit, okay? Galatians 5, 13 through 26. You're a person who's inclined to love and serve and bless other people, Galatians 6, 1 through 10. You're a person who lives with the purpose that I want all things in my life to render glory to my God, right? Galatians 6, 11 through 18. This life of liberty for you proves to be so wonderful that you want to live that life to the glory of God because you know what? It's because you know that he is the one who's made such life possible, okay? But if you're a person who depends upon law, a person who depends upon works, your life looks very different than Galatians 5 and 6, okay? Let me ask you this morning among friends, how does your life look different if you rely upon law or works? What is your life marked by? Guilt. Guilt that's inescapable, okay? You can't resolve it. Get away from it. What else? Exhaustion, constant effort, right? Excellent. Pride. We'll touch on that in a moment. Excellent. Thanks, Libby. What else? Depends on me. Absolutely. And that's attached to a train of, of terrifying <laughs> uh, fear, right? Terrifying fear. How's that for uh, doubling up on that? But it's terrifying to have it rely on myself. Anything else? Frustration. Frustration. A- absolutely. Yeah, and we could keep going with the list. This is not a, this is not a pleasant lift, list. I don't know about you as we've made our way through. Those are not things I want to sign up for, right? Uh, really, you could just take an antithetical description of Galatians 5 and 6, and that's the person who depends upon law and works, right? You're a person who lives in bondage, okay? You're a person who depends upon the flesh, which, as Preston says, leads to frustration, which leads to exhaustion. You're a person who definitely... Uh, doesn't live for the glory of God. Your life is not about rendering the glory of God. You're often, as we see in Galatians 5 and 6, even Galatians 4 earlier with the Judaizers, you're about the work of trying to please who? Other people, right? Other men. This is the reality of someone who depends upon law and works. And so no matter how you look at it, the gospel of grace is not the dangerous doctrine, which was what the Judaizers were trying to espouse. Oh, the dangerous doctrine is what? The dangerous doctrine is legalism. It's the enemy. Why? Because when you abandon grace for law, you always lose something. And Galatians 5, 1 through 12, guess what? Is unpacking a bit of what you lose if you abandon grace for law. If I could encapsulate last Sunday, verses 1 through 6, in really kind of one sentence, if you're a person, the main idea of verses 1 through 6, if you're a person who chooses law or legalism, That person robs himself of spiritual liberty and spiritual wealth. You literally thrust yourself back into bankruptcy and bondage, right? Galatians 5.1, why why continue to go back to that yoke of slavery that you once knew? Why? Who has bewitched you, right? This week, Paul continues to expound upon this loss. The main idea being in verses 7 through 12, the person who chooses legalism robs himself of still more. 
They rob themselves of spiritual direction and spiritual health. Spiritual direction and spiritual health. Let's read verses 7 through 12 for a moment. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you, that's the Judaizers, the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, here's the question, why am I still being persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. And that's an unpleasant place to put the end of that text, but we'll get there in a moment. The person who chooses legalism robs himself of spiritual direction and spiritual health. Now that text we just read can kind of start to feel like a kind of staccato random lines that are thrust together. It reads kind of awkward, but here's what's being conveyed here, okay? The false gospel of works, which again is trying to counter, always leads to two unfortunate realities. False gospel of works always leads to two very unfortunate realities. One, a spiritual detour. Okay, verses 7 through 8, a spiritual detour. Secondly, it leads to spiritual contamination in verses 9 through 12. Let's just start with the detour for a moment, shall we? That loss of spiritual direction that when one depends upon law instead of grace, okay? Paul is very fond of athletic illustrations, okay? He used them often throughout his epistles, right? And part of this is that his, his readers were very familiar with the Olympic Games and other Greek athletic contests that entailed foot races, okay? Now, it's important for you and I to know as a church and as believers that Paul never uses the image of running a race to tell people how to be saved, does he? He doesn't tell, talk about running a race in terms of how to be saved or to merit salvation. No, when he uses this image, he's using it. He's always talking to Christians about how to live the Christian life. You see, a contestant in the Greek games had to be a citizen before he could compete. And friends, you and I know and love this and cherish this about the gospel that we know, right? that we become citizens through faith in Christ. And then it's only upon that faith that the Lord then puts us on a course and we run to win the prize. You know what the text probably comes to mind. What text comes to mind? Run, running, Philippians chapter three, right? Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which for which also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on to later in Philippians 3, goes on to say, hey, listen, that type of running, that's not true of non-citizens. That type of running is not true for unbelievers. You know what their running looks like. It's, he says their end is destruction. Their, their belly is their God, right? Their appetite is their God. Their glory is their shame. And their minds are set on earthly things. That is the unbeliever. 
Philippians 3, 18 and 19. And so the whole of scripture is very, very clear about this. We, we do not run to be saved. We run because we are saved, right? And we thus want to fulfill God's will in our life. This is who we are, Acts 20, 24. I consider my life of, of no account, of any account. I simply want my life to testify of the grace of my God and I'm gonna run to that end. I consider my life of no account. And all of this underscores and reiterates what we covered last week in verses one through four. Look back there for a moment. You have these heavy phrases that when Paul says these believers have been severed from Christ or fallen from grace, he's not communicating that they've lost their salvation. Okay? Once saved, always saved. Eternal security is a glorious theme in Scripture of which all of God's people say amen and thank you. Right? John 10, 28. They will never perish. That is the believer. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Right? The Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one will snatch them from my Father's hand. Again, we say thank you. Paul communicated the exact same thing in Romans 8.20. Those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's a surety there. There's a sweetness there. Now, when Paul says the justified believers are severed from Christ or fallen from grace, he's not saying that justified believers become unjustified. The Bible knows nothing of being unjustified. Okay? It's important to us, even as we work through the book of Hebrews with those warning passages. Paul is simply pointing out the harsh reality that their now backpedaling reliance on human effort is hindering them from accessing that nourishing grace that is absolutely needed for them to finish the race in a way that honors the God who saved them by his grace. So what's Paul doing? He's doing the exact same thing he's doing throughout the entire epistle. He's saying, be careful. Watch out for these bewitching Judaizers, these deceptive, self-righteous enemies of the cross. Look out. Beware. He's saying you're choosing the way of law instead of grace. Lead you on a spiritual detour. It culminates in a loss of spiritual direction in your life. Be careful. This is why Paul says in verse 7, you were running so well. (laughs) You were. And they were. When Paul first came to them, let's just remind ourselves. What was their reception of Paul at the beginning? You remember Galatians 4.14? It says that they literally received him as an angel of God. They believed the word. They trusted in Christ, were indwelt by his spirit. Their love was evident to all people. They had a deep joy that was undeniable. That joy was made evident in their willingness to make any and all sacrifices to accommodate the Apostle Paul. Galatians 4.15 says they were literally willing to give them their own eyes. They were willing to give Paul their own eyes. And yet now the scenario is very different. Now Paul is more like an enemy. What happened? Well, Paul tells us what happened when asking the following rhetorical question. You were running so well, and look at the end of verse 7. What does it say? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? 
Literal translation there is you were running well, who cut in on you and stopped you from obeying the truth? You see, in races, which is the image which should have flooded the minds of those in Galatia at that time, in races, runners were to stay in their assigned lane, okay? But some runners would not abide by that rule, would they? What they would proceed to do is to cut in on their competitors to try to do what? Why would runners try to cut in on other individuals racing against them? They would cut in to try to misdirect them, right? Bump them up course, get in front of them. And that's exactly what the Judaizers were trying to do to those in Galatia. Who hindered you, cut in on you? They cut in on them. They forced them to change direction and go on a spiritual detour. They led them away from the way of grace and faith back towards the direction of law and works. Paul is very clear to say, listen, this wasn't God who did this. No, God called them to run faithfully in a lane that specifically and wonderfully marked grace. And yet someone's bumped them off course. They're in the wrong lane and their lane is marked by the word works. You know this anecdotally from your own life, right? You ever pull on a street and realize that two things have happened. A, you've pulled onto a one-way street, which is not inherently bad in and of itself, okay? You've turned onto a one-way street only to realize you are what? You are going the wrong way, right? Absolutely terrifying. San Francisco literally is a town of all one-way streets. I do not enjoy it for many, many terrifying reasons. It is a terrifying thing to turn onto a one-way street and realize I'm going the wrong direction. And in some ways, that's exactly what the believers in Galatia had done. Paul's saying, who coerced you from turning down the wrong street? Why the spiritual detour? And when Paul says, who hindered you from obeying the truth, that obeying the truth encompasses really all people who are reading Paul's letter, okay? Now make no mistake about it, there were some in the room not yet born again. Okay? They're not believers. They had not placed their trust in Jesus Christ. And so the truth that they were to yield to was what? It was the message of the gospel of how God saves men and women. That was the message that they, would, they were to obey and to yield to. But also in the room were those who were born again. They had placed their trust in Jesus Christ. They had been indwelt by his spirit. And so the truth that they were to obey was the way in which the saved are to live out their redeemed lives in obedience to God's word and his spirit. That is the truth that they were to yield to. And Paul is saying, listen, these Judaizers have literally cut in on both groups. It doesn't matter who you are. Their deceptive poison of legalism was preventing the unsaved from coming to Christ in faith and the saved from following Christ in faith. They were wreaking havoc in Galatia. And you and I need to be clear about this. Their motives for doing this was not pure, was it? If you're in a race and a runner beside you cuts in on you, they, I hate to break it to you, they don't do that because they love you, okay? No, they're cutting in on you because they want to gain an advantage. And we learn from Galatians 4.17 what their motives were. Look back at Galatians 4.17. 
these individuals were doing this cutting in in order to gain a following for themselves. Later in Galatians 6, 6, 12, there says they were cutting in on these individuals in order to make a good showing in the flesh. Literally, they wanted to boast in their spiritual detour. Let me ask you, friends, does this continue to happen today? Do we still have people, even in the modern era, within the church, sheep and wolves clothing, who are trying to lead people astray, yes or no? Yeah. And it will continue to happen until the Lord returns, right? 2 Peter chapter 2 says a lot about this. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce secretly introduced destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And there you have Paul, in light of that reality, both in the past and in the present and on into the future until the Lord returns, there is Paul out in the middle of the road, laying into his whistle, waving his arms in the, in the air saying, you're going the wrong way. You're being led astray. He's the judge in a race who literally lays into his horn and is basically a de- decrying a lane violation. Look up. You're in the lane marked by works. Why did you get out of the lane of grace? Paul reminds them of who put them in this race. Look at verse 8. This persuasion, he says, this deceptive and detour-producing tactic of the self-righteous Judaizers, this persuasion did not come from him who calls you, from him who calls you. God is here identified uniquely as the sovereign one, right? That one who's effectually called you and saved you. And this work of salvation is entirely God's doing and and none of man's doing. That's the way it's been since the very beginning. And so therefore, the implication, and we've seen this already in this great letter. Therefore, any teaching that says that God's gracious work of God in saving men is insufficient, which is what the Judaizers were trying to do. Hey, listen, you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And you also have to be circumcised in order to gain that next kind of rung of spirituality, maturity, growth, and advancement. And any teaching, Paul says, that says that gracious work of God saving man through the finished work of his son and his finished work of his son alone is inherently and patently, patently and grossly false. Legalism is never from God. This persuasion does not come from him. So Paul says, why the spiritual detour? Why, why rob your spiritual direction that God has given you by allowing these false teachers to cut in on you and hinder you? He moves forward in verse 9, the second unfortunate reality that the false gospel of works always leads to is not only a spiritual detour, but also a spiritual contamination. Spiritual contamination. Look at verse 9. Paul here, his explanation changes from athletics to cooking. He introduces the idea of yeast or leaven. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Now, 
What do you know about leaven throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testament? What is it typically symbolizing in God's word? You tell me. Sin, right? Students just covered this recently in the Gospel of Matthew, right? In the Old Testament, leaven is generally pictured as a symbol of evil. Exodus 12 and 13. During Passover, there was to be no yeast allowed into the house. Exodus 34, you couldn't mix yeast with sacrifices. Jesus, Matthew 16, used leaven to speak of the picture of sin that he warns against, against the sin and self-righteousness of the Pharisees. He said, the leaven of the Pharisees. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's going to speak about the sin in Corinth as being leaven. Leaven was a symbol of sin. And so leaven and yeast is a phenomenal illustration of sin, is it not? In that it's, it's small, but when you leave it alone, what happens to yeast? We know this. I don't even cook. It expands. It grows. It permeates the whole, which is exactly what sin does. And the false doctrine of the Judaizers, friends, was exactly like that. It was introduced to the church in Galatia in real small, maybe even subtle ways at first. But before long, what happens? The yeast grew and the the yeast takes over. The leaven expands, permeates the whole. Here's the takeaway for you and I as a church, just to give a pastoral pause for a moment. When we read verse nine, I think the takeaway here is that the spirit of legalism, and we need to be mindful and watchful, vigilant of this, the spirit of legalism typically doesn't overpower a church suddenly and overnight. No, it's typically like leaven in that it's often introduced in very subtle, even seemingly pure motive sort of ways, right? But before long, what begins to happen? It poisons the whole entire fellowship. And in most cases, the initial motives that encourage legalism may be good. We, we may want to be a more spiritual church. That's not a bad thing to want to be, right? We want to be a spiritual church for roots to go down deep and people growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what we want. Conformed into his image. Well, the issue comes when the methods to achieve that desired goal start to become unscriptural, right? It's not wrong to have standards in the church. But we should never think that standards will somehow make anybody more spiritual. Or that keeping of the standards is an evidence of spirituality. Friends, let me ask you this. What happens when we as a church begin to fixate on the externals of our neighbors to our right and our left and what we perceive about their spiritual life? What typically happens? That question makes sense? What happens when we fixate on the externals of our neighbors to our right and to our left and what it says to us about their spiritual life? A downward spiral. A downward spiral. Okay. Excellent. Let's unpack that. We judge them. Excellent. And. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We, we start judging, we start uh, fruit inspecting, right? Assessing everyone. What else? 
I see a couple. Matt, self-righteousness. We'll touch on that. Yeah. That's what, that's what leaven does. What a great picture, right? It puffs up. First Corinthians chapter five, that's exactly what it says it does. It puffs up. We begin to have an air of superiority that I am doing better than my neighbor to my right or my left. And what oftentimes happens, yes, Nathan, go ahead. Yeah, yes, yeah, it, it could almost, because we obsess so much about the externals of other people, and we see only a small percentage of one another's lives, right? So let's take that uh, on face value. But we, it also, our enemy is crafty, tireless, right? He knows what to do, and he uses that to eat away at our, at our own sense of security in Christ, right? Strip us, rob us of the joy that is ours because of what Christ has done. We start to think of ourselves as less than, we beat ourselves up, and we spiral into pity, self-pity right? Everyone is doing better than I am. But if we just set our eyes upon grace and Christ and what he's done, are different people going to be in different places in in terms of maturation? Absolutely. This is the case as a five-year-old is at a different place than a 60-year-old. Although spiritual maturity has nothing to do with age, okay? You can be old and be spiritually immature. All of these things ensue. Self-righteous, arrogance, critical spirit towards other people. What also begins to happen? We stop seeing whose sin? My sin, right? I stop doing the hard work of assessing my life and God, see if there be any offensive way in me. That's not my disposition when I'm fixated on the externals of other people. That's what leaven does. And it can be subtle. I think I'm, I'm hopeful, I'm prayerful that if anything, the Lord kind of works among his people in the book of Galatians is that he would safeguard North Lake Bible Church from being that church. Self-righteous, arrogant, critical, judgmental people. And we need a lot of help because that's exactly where our hearts are prone to go, right? We don't need a lot of help, nudging or an encouragement to move in that direction. What is the remedy? The remedy is the gospel. The remedy is grace. Reminding ourselves of why we are right before a holy God. I want to encourage you this morning. Every single Christian in this room has the responsibility, and that's not a dirty word, has the responsibility to watch the beginnings of legalism in his or her life. And the reason that that's a responsibility is because the first bit of yeast that infects your life or this fellowship eventually grows into a very serious problem before you even realize it. The leaven of legalism is a serious problem of sin simply because of its power to infect and permeate that which is otherwise good. Okay? And to, in an attempt to underscore the seriousness of this problem, as Paul so routinely does, You move forward, he's clear to point out what will occur to those who maliciously drop leaven into the lump of dough. What will happen to those who intentionally lead others astray 
by mixing law and grace. What will happen to these Judaizers? Look at verse 10. He's going to get to what happens to them, but there's this, before that declaration, there's this word of encouragement to true believers that I don't, I, I don't want you to miss. I have confidence you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view. No other view but the true gospel that I taught you while I ministered among you. Friends, the destiny of believers is secure, amen? We know this throughout the Bible, Philippians 1.6. I am confident of this, that he, he who began a good work within you will what? will work in you to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, for you are partakers of grace with me. That is the reality of our life. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but that's not the destiny of ungodly teachers who lead the Lord's people astray. Verse 10, I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment whoever he is. Friends, it is, you are never in a good place when you stand against God and his truth. You are never in a good place. And because the Judaizers were standing against God and his truth, his gospel, Paul says that they're going to carry, listen, they're going to carry the full weight of their judgment in due time. The Lord will deal with them in his time. We see this promised terrifying destiny throughout the New Testament, even the old. Jesus himself said in Matthew 18, 6, I think the students covered this recently, should be familiar. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it's better to have a millstone wrapped around his neck and thrown into the heart of the sea and drown, right? Peter wrote in his second epistle that false teachers often cause others to follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth is maligned. And in their greed, they exploit others through false words. In their greed. Very reminiscent of Galatia, right? They want to gain a following from themselves. They want to boast in your spiritual detour. But look at 2 Peter 2. 2. Their judgment from long ago, and I love this, how it's put, is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. The Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. What does that do? It gives you peace. The Lord's going to work all of this out. We see false teachers, individuals leading astray, and we rise up with kind of a, a righteous anger. That's fine. We grieve and lament over how people are being led astray. God will deal with these individuals in due course and time. And so, in effect, Paul is saying, don't allow those who are to be judged to cut in on you. Don't allow them to hinder you and don't allow them to contaminate you. He goes on to also elaborate on these contaminating efforts in verse 11. He moves forward. He says, but I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. You see, part of their contaminating efforts included spreading falsehood. False claims that he too, the Apostle Paul, that he too was preaching circumcision as being part of the gospel. And this is not a new phenomenon, right? What we, what we find throughout the epistles is that, one is, is that one of the most commonly used tactics among false teachers was to forge a message and to ascribe credit and authority as having come from the pen of an apostle. You could just go to the book of 2 Thessalonians, right? Obviously, there was a false letter that was written 
Someone put Paul's name on it, and that letter was telling people that Christ had already returned. And so what does Paul have to do? He literally has to write 2 Thessalonians just to clear the air. Hey, I know this book, this letter that's being passed around, it's got my name on it. A, it didn't come from me. And let me reassure you, the Lord has not returned yet, but he will. Let's talk about that. And he unpacks that in 2 Thessalonians. Here in Galatia, that's exactly what's happening. In order to get traction in their leading you astray, they are telling you that I too preach circumcision, but let me ask you this. This is a fair question. This is logic on display. If I too preach circumcision as being part of the gospel, here's the question. Why are they still persecuting me? It is a fair question. If I'm preaching the same message that they're trying to infect you with, why am I being persecuted by them? Paul is trying to reiterate here what he stated earlier in his letter. If you look at Galatians 2.21, he says, listen, I will... I would never and I will never advocate circumcision as being part of the gospel. You don't need it to be saved. You don't need it to gain some sort of other rung of spirituality. I will never advocate as being, that being the case. Because if I do, look at Galatians 2.21. If I do that, I nullify the grace of God. And Christ died needlessly. Those are heavy, forceful words. I will never say righteousness comes through the law, which is what the Judaizers espoused in kind of holding up circumcision for those in Galatia. He puts this in another way right here in chapter 5, verse 11. The stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. The cross was a stumbling block to the Jews, and people continue to stumble over the cross to this day, do they not? It continues to offend fallen men for the same basic reason, and it is this. And that's because whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, it really makes no difference. All men are prone to trust in what they can do themselves. We're all prone to trust in what we can do for ourselves, and we're offended by any notion when we're told that we can't do anything at all and we need someone else to do the work for us. Which, isn't that what the gospel is? I needed someone to come to do for me what I could not do for myself. We quote this often right now in Galatia, Romans 8, right? What the law could not do, as weak as though it was in the flesh, two beautiful words, God did. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. We're going to celebrate that at communion this morning. His body, his blood, what? Doing for us what we could never do and accomplish through any adherence to the law because we are incapable. That can be offensive if it were not for the grace of God invading your heart and your mind and giving you eyes to see and ears to hear and faith to believe. Of course, this preaching of the cross invited persecution in Paul's life because to these Judaizers, this offended their system of works righteousness. It was an assault against their message. And so Paul says, listen, if I'm preaching 
a message that says human effort or circumcision is part of the gospel, well, the stumbling block of the cross is abolished. (laughs) There's no more tripping. There's no more stumbling if you can do it through your own efforts. The offense has been removed. But that hasn't, that's not been the case and isn't the case. And then Paul closes with some of the strongest words we see in all of Scripture, let alone in all of his letters. Verse 12. And it leaves leaves us in a troubling state, a bad taste in our mouth when he says, I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Okay? Be mindful of our audience here. But I'll leave it at this. Since the death and resurrection of Christ, there is no spiritual value to circumcision. It's simply a physical operation. And Paul here says, I wish these false teachers, I wish that they would operate on themselves. I wish that they would, he even uses this word, mutilate themselves. Now, again, mindful of our audience, but the word there is to castrate oneself. Now, for us, again, bad taste, poor taste, forceful language, language, furious language, But he uses this for a reason, because this would have resonated in the ears of those in Paul's day, and here's why. In Paul's day, there was a prominent cult of Sybil. Sybil was a, basically a nature goddess, a popular pagan nature goddess. And men, in devotion to Sybil, they would literally do exactly this. They would mutilate themselves, they would castrate themselves to express devotion to the goddess Sybil. And so Paul's point is this, and it's plain. He says, if the Judaizers are so insistent on circumcision as a means of pleasing God, well, then why don't they go all the way and mutilate themselves as a supreme act of devotion to God? If, like the pagans, they believe human achievement can earn divine favor, if they believe that, if they're no different than pagans, well, then why don't they go to the pagan extremes of self-mutilation? just like the civilian priests. You can see what Paul's doing here. Hey, you know this in your own cultural context. This is familiar to you. Why don't, if you're gonna, if you're gonna operate under a doctrine that represents paganism, false doctrine, damning doctrine, why don't you go all the way to pagan extremes? And the reason that Paul is so forceful is because he knew what was on the line. To add any human effort to God's gracious provision through the death of his son was to exchange the saving gospel of Christ for the damning falsehood of legalism. And for Paul, as the apostle, steward of the gospel, shepherd of the church, he couldn't sit idly by and let these wolves come in. So, of course, he uses strong language because he knows if he doesn't, There's a spiritual detour that believers can get on. Individuals can become spiritually contaminated and the church can be weakened because of it. He didn't want these false teachers to produce any more children of slavery, right? Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Why then be subject again to a yoke of slavery? Don't go back there. Don't start running in the lane marked works again. You remember how exhausting that was, how destructive that was. The law had a purpose, which we unpacked in chapter 3. But now the gospel of grace has come. There's much for you and I to chew on in the way of just application. We have 
maybe 10 minutes to help each other. I want to ask you kind of two areas of questions. I want you to think individually for a moment and park there. I want to ask, and let's kind of hear from everyone, what are some practical things that you as an individual believer can do to ensure that you stay in the lane marked grace? How do you avoid spiritual detour? What do you do individually? Be in the word. Why is that, Joseph? Okay. Gives you knowledge of what to, what to practice. It shapes the motives of why I practice these things. What else? Just perpetual reminders of what Christ did, right? Many of you began the year reading through the Bible. You're probably in the Old Testament, probably making your way to the book of Genesis. Anyone? Okay. This story of redemption, that Genesis 3.15, from the seed of the woman, one would come. And then the unpacking redemptive history from there. So each and every day that you read that word, it is preaching that message to you. It's always been God's plan for a savior to come to do for you what you could not do for yourself. What else? Confession of sin. Okay. Okay. Can, um, confession of sin, can you kind of maybe think through why that's helpful? Why is that helpful for us? Yeah, yeah, I have an ingrained habit to bring my sin to God, right? I know it's dealt there. I know there's grace there. I know there's mercy there. I know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I don't use it as a license for sin, I don't abuse grace. I don't go on sinning that grace may abound. But in contrition, in repentance, I bring those sins to God. And I find mercy. It's readily available. Absolutely. That shepherds and tends to the heart as well. What else? Preston. Yeah, yeah, just rehearsing the gospel, right? Sometimes we think, I've got that down, but we say this often, I say it often, you never graduate from the gospel, which is what Preston, Preston just mentioned. Rehearse the gospel, Matt. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. We think on it. We read about it. We're going to sing about it in just a moment. We're going to celebrate it in obedience to, to our, our Lord by observing the table. All gospel rehearsal, right? You, you know that I have a 15-year-old, right? We're on the precipice of him driving. Cover your prayers. Um, but you know this as those who drive, right? There's there's, a, there's things, I think back in the 50s, they put these, those rumble strips in the road where they would cut grooves into the highway. What are rumble strips for? Warning, right? <laughs> abort, abort. You're in the wrong lane. You're getting off course. You're detouring, right? And they have, they have many different names. 
rumble strips, drunk bumps. I mean, there's, there's about a dozen of them. But the, the point is this, right? And these kind of habits, these things we do individually, they're kind of like rumble strips. They remind me, they steer me. Hey, I'm getting off course. They shepherd my heart. They allowed me to see myself. All of a sudden, I'm, now, I'm able to get a sense of the, the critical spirit that I have towards other people. But I'm, I don't treat my sin as equally serious as I'm perceiving theirs to be, right? All of these helpful reminders. I want us to think through this. What are some practical things we as a church, so think corporate, we as a church can do to repel any notion of legalism in this fellowship? How do we avoid spiritual contamination? What's that, Naomi? Self-examination? Okay, excellent. I mean, we can do that as, as a body, as a church, corporately speaking. Self-assess. What can we do corporately? Yeah, be accountable. <laughs> he says no. Yes, yes, especially you. Be accountable, open, vulnerable. What else? Yeah, love, love, love covers a multitude of sin. We'll get to that in Galatians 6, 1 through 10 and here soon. What else? Bear one another's burdens. What's that? Practice grace in a tangible community shaping sort of way among people. Excellent. Yeah, being properly formed and informed about Christian liberty, right? Again, not to use it as a license for sin, but what is it to, to be a person marked by grace, to have the righteousness of Christ, right? Everyone's going to have an issue of conscience, and Romans speaks to that. How we tend to that, First Corinthians speaks to that. Anything else we can do corporately? Pray for one another. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, don't isolate yourself. Uh, don't forsake the assembly, right? Book of Hebrews, which we're in right now. Excellent. Huh? Practice the one another's, right? We're all we're all on a, we're all on a, we're all in the race together. And you're going to look up and some people are just running full stride and we marvel. Like, wow, their gait is phenomenal. <laughs> they don't even look tired. And you're going to look to your other direction and someone's going to be kind of plodding along with a limp, right? You know what? Those people oftentimes take turns, don't they? <laughs> when one person's running well, another person's limping and back and forth. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. One of the many beauties about the body of Christ. That's Galatians 6.2. We, we bear one another's burdens. You come alongside them, right? Doesn't make them any less of a believer, but we're all kind of in and out of moments where Faith is waning. I'm struggling. Anxiety takes over. Sin starts to rear its ugly head. We need assistance. We need encouragement, accountability, all of these things. I want to encourage you, even in just this next hour, I, I want you to, as we move into the main, the main, main service, we'll call it main service, the whole morning is of the Lord's. I, I want you to, my encouragement, go into our next hour with this in mind. Every component of our service is to be an instrument that points us to God's grace. Okay. 
Every lyric that you sing, every prayer that we pray is to be approached with a degree of earnestness and seriousness and joy. I want that to shape the next time. I know, I, I think collectively as a church, we want that to shape our, our, our next time together. Do we not? Think about that as you celebrate around the table, as you remember, right? Do this as often as you remember me until I return. And that's, we're going to be obedient to that this morning. Confess sin before you do so. Tend to that. Thank the Lord for his grace and what that cup and bread signifies regarding his grace in your life. Okay, can we do that? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for, we do thank you for grace. We never grow tired of saying that. I do ask us that you, ask that you help us, safeguard us. We want to stay in the, the appropriate lane and there are extremes on either side. There are, are ditches to avoid. On, on one end, Lord, we want to, in marveling at your grace, we don't want to become licentious individuals where we use it and abuse it, abuse your grace in our own sin. We want to be pursuing righteousness. We want to be conformed into your likeness and your image. We want to be forsaking sin. So Lord, safeguard us from wanting to abuse your grace as a license for sin, but also Lord, safeguard us from what our hearts are also equally prone to, and that's self-righteous legalism. That's an air of superiority that is judging one another, being critical and really kind of assessing where I am in my spiritual maturity by the kind of the barometer of other people's lives around me, Lord. I pray that our measure would be you and your likeness. And so we would collectively look to you and Lord, we pray that the overflow, the implications out of that, would this would be a loving fellowship. This would be a place where grace would abound, where we do help and assist those who are weak and whose faith is weary. We would even admonish the unruly where it's appropriate and needed. Lord, give us grace to do that. And we pray for our pastor as he opens yet again the book of Hebrews. We pray that you would help us to eat from your word in a way that's like Lord nourishes us and grows us in our love and affection for you, even as we approach the table. Lord, help us to do so in a way which is honorable and right and of you. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.